0: Well, the start of a new year, and especially a new decade, is a natural time for people to be thinking about life plans and life changes. So in this series, we're acknowledging that by by pushing your direction in maybe a direction that we don't normally think. And that is, the best way to come up with good plans and changes for your life is if you can see those things clearly. So in this series, we've been looking at different areas of life that tend to get a little blurry, like, what is the purpose of suffering? What is the purpose of pain? That was my favorite message so far. And, and maybe seeing it from a different perspective. And so today, we're going to get into part five of this series by looking at this one topic. Uh, we want to help you see advice a little bit more clearly. And I believe that if you can just discern the advice around you more clearly, it'll have a bigger impact than any other thing in your life. And I'll, I'll tell you why in just a minute. First of all, I did a little bit of research just trying to get a grasp on how we view advice and what it means for us and the impact it has on people like me and you. And there was a quote that I ran across, a couple different people said it, so I'm not sure who the original author is, otherwise I would have cited them. But they basically said that you are the average of your five closest friends. You look at the five people who you are closest to, Whether that's people you text every day, people you hang out with every week, people you work with, people you're married to, Uh, the the five closest friends you have, you're basically the average of those five. So their hopes and dreams, you're going to be kind of average with with them. Their strengths and weaknesses, again, you're going to be about average. Just as you look at their life and their potential, usually the people you surround yourself with kind of indicates where you're going to be headed. It's been said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Good, no one knew that. (laughs) I thought that was a well-known quote. Um, Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And I think there's some truth to that. But I think we're at a stage in our culture with technology and a number of other things where it's not just your closest friends that have this influence over you, but maybe we need to expand it to say that you're the average of your five biggest influences. And here's what this means for me. So I I like to listen to podcasts quite a bit. And since I'm a preacher, I kind of geek out over the preaching podcasts. So I like to listen to other preachers preach. And that kind of uh, fills me up for the week. Uh, But I have to be careful because when I listen to one preacher a lot, like in, in a week or in a month, what I find is I start to sound a lot like them. In fact, some people noticed this six years ago when I first came to North Cross. First of all, Ben didn't let me preach for like a good month when I got here. I think he was worried about quality control a little bit. <laughs> so I, I sat where you're sitting, different building, but I sat in the, in the chairs and I was just listening to him preach. And I remember the first Sunday I got up to preach, someone uh, on the church leadership came up to me and they said, yeah, good job. You really sound a lot like Ben. <laughs> well, it's because he had been influencing me. And so that's why today I only listen to the podcasts um, where I preach. You really get an authentic voice that way. It works. My point is this. We have so many influences around us. If you're looking for advice in a certain area of life, you can download 50 podcasts right now, and you can listen to them at two times speed on your way home, and you'll have all sorts of advice for how to live your life and what to do with it. It's not that we need more advice. We're surrounded by it already. I think the trick for us in today's world is to surround ourselves with the right advice, but then have this ability to discern which advice is good and bad. If you're taking notes, number one on your sheet, the better you can discern the advice, the better you can see your life. Because advice is simply this. People are looking into your life, and they're speaking into the next step you should be taking. And the more people that are looking into your life, the better you will see it but only if you have the ability to discern which advice you should listen to. So to do this, what I'm going to do is we're going to open up a a part of the Bible. Now, some parts of the Bible are deeply theological and doctrinal, and that's not what we're looking at today. One of the sections we're going to look at today is something that's really historical, and there's a lot of wisdom and truth that, that we can pull out of it in a practical way. And the section we're going to look at is, I made this claim last night for the Saturday people, and I'm going to stick by it. By the way, the Saturday people say hi. Do you want to say hi back? Oh, there you go. They, they, they say thank you. Uh, what we're going to look at today is, I'm going to stand by this. This is going to be the biggest failure in biblical history, only surpassed by what Adam and Eve did. They kind of take the cake for that one. But we're going to look at an account of history that's the biggest Mistake, and it all had to do because one man did not have the ability to discern between good advice and bad advice. The reason this is the biggest failure is because, up until this moment, I'll kind of give you the, the bottom line right away. The biggest thing that happened was you've got this entire nation of Israel. This is about 920 BC. You have all 12 tribes of Israel together as one nation. King David had just gone through and unified them all through military conquests. And now Solomon has done some amazing building projects. You've got this amazing nation. Everyone is looking at it. It's the powerhouse of the world. But one king's decision split the kingdom into two. And it had ramifications much beyond one generation. By some measures, the impact of his bad decision still has shockwaves to this day. As you look at some of the unrest in the Middle East and the different clashes and clans, some of this is just a distant, distant, distant shockwave of what this one man did to make the biggest failure in biblical history. History. Now, I have to set the stage a little bit, and I told somebody this after the first service that I said, I'm not really that good with history, so for me to, to teach this, I had to do a lot of digging. So here's what you need to know. Like, I'm all about just tell me what I need to know so I can get on with this. Here's what you need to know uh, King Solomon was the king of Israel right after David, he did a lot of building projects. In fact, as you look at uh, some, a book of the Bible called 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapters 5 through 11 tells you some of the building projects that he did. We don't have time to go through all of them, but I did put them all on one screen. So he did the temple. This is well known. He did the temple in Jerusalem, which was amazing. Uh, He did the, the king's palace. He did the support terraces around Jerusalem, which... If you know, Jerusalem is built on a hill, and so there had to be a good support system for the foundations so that it wouldn't all tumble away. And he did this extensive support terrace system to help that all out. You can see some of the different cities that he built up. He built up the walls of Jerusalem. And I just had to mention this one because I think one day, Solomon was sitting down with his building supervisor, and he asked him, "Well, how much more do you think we should build here? and the building supervisor came back and said maybe tadmore maybe tadmore he did some store cities that were just designed to store the incredible insane amounts of wealth that he had some towns were designed just to take care and manage take care of and manage his his chariots and all of his horses. Just imagine all these building projects. And then in First Kings 11, it just ends with this. I think whoever was writing it, he just got frustrated. And he's like, he just, whatever he desired to build, he did it. Now, that was in the span of 20 years of a king reigning over the, the country. And you might wonder, I might wonder, how did he do that? And the answer is, he had about 183,000 forced laborers. He sent word throughout the land, there's going to be a draft. Not a Super Bowl type. But the Super Bowl doesn't have a draft. See, I'm messing this up. I'm messing this up. There's going to be this draft. And if your name is picked, you will be a laborer for me. No choice about it. You have to be a laborer. And so the way Solomon set this up was that uh, some of the laborers for an entire month at a time had to leave their home, leave their, their, their family, leave their housestead, to go to the quarry. Go to the mine, go to the forests, go build whatever needed to be built. And they endured it. I mean, these people endured it. But with 183,000 people, basically you were one of them, your daddy was one of them, or your neighbor was one of them. And it impacted everything everyone, especially after 20 years. I think at first the people kind of got it. Okay, we need to build up our kingdom. We need to have some buildings. But after 20 years, the people were getting tired of all this forced labor. They were being stretched thin. And so here's one thing that Solomon noticed. As he's managing over all this, he notices this young man named Jeroboam. Someone suggested I call him Jerry, but I know a Jerry in the room, and He's no Jerry. Uh, this guy named Jeroboam, and he, he noticed this young man was was so good at this building stuff that he made him the, the coordinator for all of his labor force. So today we're going to see a little bit about Jeroboam, who was the, the, in charge of the whole labor force. So you just have to kind of remember his name. He's important. And the other name, which... I'm sorry, you can't make this up, but it rhymes and it's really hard to keep him straight. The other guy we need to know is Rehoboam. So Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son and he's set up to be the next king of Israel. The throne will eventually belong to him and he will get this entire kingdom with all of its buildings that uh, Solomon is building. But one day, Jeroboam gets a really interesting message from this random prophet who just walks up to him and You can read the whole story if you want to at home, but 1 Kings 11 verse 31 gives us the point. See, Jeroboam, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 of the 12 tribes. Judah and Levi, they're kind of the southern ones. They'll stay together, but you will get the 10 tribes, and this will be a split kingdom. And when Solomon heard about this, he tried to kill Jeroboam because, you know, he can't have someone else taking the throne from his son. So Jeroboam runs down to Egypt, stays there until Solomon is dead. And that's where we pick up in 1 Kings chapter 12. Rehoboam is about to take the throne, ascend to be the king of Israel, but he has a crucial decision to make. And in the thick of it, he fails to discern the good advice from the bad. And because of that, he 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 initiated the biggest failure in biblical history. Here's how it begins. So Rehoboam went to Shechem. Shechem is in the middle of all the tribes of the entire nation, so it was a central meeting location. Uh, it'd be like us all Americans meeting in Nebraska, which I don't know if that would ever happen, but middle of the nation for all if you're from Nebraska, I'm sorry. Nebraska is great. Um, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. Now, when Jeroboam heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt, because Solomon is dead, and his life is no longer in danger. Now he has to see how this prediction or prophecy from God is going to play out. Like, how would he get these ten tribes? So here's what happened. Uh, Verse 3, the people, they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam, the new king. And in this critical moment, it's like they have a moment to at least say their piece. They're acknowledging him as king, but maybe there's a chance he'll be a little bit less harsh than the old king. So they have this little window of an opportunity for him to hear them. And here's what they asked. Your father, Solomon, he put a heavy yoke on us, but now we ask, Lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke that he put on us, and, and we will serve you. And the, the scholars, there's some disagreement about the, the heavy yoke. Was it, was it ostrich? Was it, was it emu? We're, we're not entirely sure. But they have this plead for the king. Lighten the harsh labor. We've put in our time. We've demonstrated our, our dedication for your father, but he was harsh. Maybe you'll be different. Now, what Rehoboam does next is about the only thing I can point to and say that you should do this too. What Rehoboam did was this. After hearing their request, he answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Now, whenever you have a big decision to make, this is a really good thing for you to do, unless it's your wife who's asking it. Don't tell her to go away for three days. Give me some time, give me some space, because what Rehoboam knew in this moment was that the decision he faced would have some ramifications. And based on the context and based on what he said next, I think he was afraid of one thing that also I think we can be afraid of when we're faced with big decisions. His question was this, what will happen if I say yes? My father Solomon established and built up this kingdom off the backs of these forced laborers. What will happen if I let them go? Do you think there was some fear there that he would lose what his father gave? Or that at least he would lose some of the respect and authority that his father had over his people. Based on the context, I think he was driven by fear to ask a question in his own heart. But at the very least, giving him the benefit of the doubt he created some space so that he could navigate that fear and bring in some other people. And that's where you and I find this intersection. When we're trying to discern good advice and bad advice, the thing we need to know is that, yes, we do need advice. There are moments in your life when you're faced with decisions, some big, some small, that you say to yourself, I don't think I can see all of this. And you're driven to the conclusion, number two, that you don't have the capacity to see everything that you need to see in order to make a good decision. And so you bring in the eyes and the the ears and the experience of the people around you to speak into it. And I'll tell you what, if you, in an appropriate way, if possible, create that space, that three days, or whatever it may be, to bring in the advice, that is the best thing that you can do. Unless he's down on a knee and asking you, you to marry him. Maybe don't give him three days, but in a lot of cases so good to to take a moment and say, just give me a little bit of space. I need to see what other people can see. But I don't think that Rehoboam's intentions were all that good because of what happens next. Here's what he did. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders, not elders who were necessarily connected to him in any way, but elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime, how would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And in this moment, this is like the second thing that you could arguably do that Rehoboam also did, and it'd be a good thing. He brought in the elders. Now, keep this in mind, Rehoboam is only 41 years old when he's king. So he's not old. I turned 40 this year, and that's not old. We're going to have a big party in June, by the way, um, He's not that old, and yet he acknowledges that there are some people with other wisdom and experience. Here's something that's not just good advice, but it's real biblical advice too. Honor your elders. Elders in the room, do you just want to say amen to that? Amen. Honor your elders for two reasons. Number one, it's what's best for them. Even when you're older and you cannot um, physically contribute like you used to, you are still a child of God, loved by God, and deserve to be treated as one. The other thing is when you honor your elders, you benefit from it also. They might not have the same life you did or you do, but they have years of experience where they can see how a single decision can have a very long-term impact, longer than you've even been alive. And the elders alone can speak wisdom into it. So Rehoboam did a good thing by bringing in the elders that served his father Solomon. But unfortunately, based on context and based on what he says, I don't think he was looking for their advice. Here's what happens. They replied, Today... Right now, in this moment, here's our advice. Right now, if you change your attitude and change your heart and put this into practice, today, if you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Wisdom that only an elder could have seen. Because the youth, in their wisdom, they think authority is the big thing that will win people over. But these elders had seen enough of that. And they knew that the true way to get to the heart of the people is not by being their authority, but by being their servant. And that's something that would not be perfected for another thousand years until a man named Jesus was sitting around a table with his disciples. After he had just washed their feet he said, go, love one another as I have loved you. If you want to have these people, be their servant. But this was not the advice he was looking for. In fact, in a second I'll show you, he wasn't really looking for their advice. Uh, what Ray and did with this is he rejected it. He rejected the advice of the elders and consulted, get this, the young men. What, what does young mean? 41. 41 is young. Young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. And there's a couple of red flags here. Number one, uh, young men who had grown up with him means that they were buddies since childhood. They had done life together. They all saw things the same way because they had similar experiences. Um, And I'll tell you why that's a red flag in just a minute. The other thing is, what was their job? Their job was to serve him to please him and to make him happy. And the best way to make your buddy happy is to agree with whatever he believes and whatever he wants. And so here's a quick bottom line for you guys. As you seek advice and you try to discern good advice from bad advice, one good thing you may have in your life is a good group of close friends that you grew up with and they have your back and they love you. And sometimes they'll give you good advice, but there's something you need to be aware of your closest friends might not be in a position to give you good advice sometimes because they see life the exact same way you do and they see things the exact same way you do and they're there to support you and love you and and approve of you no matter what. And their advice might not be all that objective all the time. They love you, yes. They're for you, yes. But their advice might not always be the best. That was definitely true of Rehoboam. When he gathered his friends who were... Lifelong buddies doing life together, I have no doubt that they loved him, but they were not in a position to give him the advice that he needed. So, this is what he asks Buddies, what's your advice? How should I answer these people who say to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? What do I tell them? And in their response, the way that they repeat what he just tells them shows me that they're highlighting one of these words to get an emotional response. They said to him, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Your father was a bad king. Your daddy worked us into the ground. Your daddy's big way that he's going to be remembered is as this person who forced labor onto these people he messed up and the the friends are working him up a little bit your father did this to us so here's what you're going to say to him my little finger is thicker than my father's waist my father laid on you a heavy yoke i will make it even heavier my father scourged you with whips that's child's play i will scourge you with scorpions I don't even know how you do that, but it doesn't sound pleasant. They're, they're, they're on purpose elevating and, and making this way more than common sense to prove the point that if they were afraid of Solomon and if they were tired of him, they should be even more afraid of the authority of Rehoboam, his son. And the intended consequence would be that the people step back and say, your highness, we're sorry. But just as the elders predicted, it did not end the way he wanted. And the big thing behind this, I think this is something we can learn from too, if if you're really trying to discern good advice from bad advice, whether it's the people around you or just the influences that you hear, you have to be aware of how you approach the situation. When you seek to learn, are you legitimately seeking advice or are you just trying to seek the approval from the people you love? Because, number three, you cannot seek both advice and approval at the same time. If you are seeking approval, you will be blind and deaf to the best advice that anyone could possibly give you because all you want is that one thing, and all you need is their approval. If you're seeking approval, don't pretend that you're open to advice. So you need to set aside what you think you can see and bring in what others can see. And the beauty about having these elders for, for, for Rehoboam is that they had a lot of experience and they saw life a lot differently than he did. And I think that's the beauty of the church too. You look around, this isn't a certain age, a certain demographic, a certain nationality. This is all walks of life, all different backgrounds. And you're surrounded by some people who can see life in a lot of different ways. Before we get there, I'm sorry, Rehoboam. I'm surprised I haven't gotten it mess, mixed up. Rehoboam had this big decision to make. He, he heard his friends, he heard the elders, but finally, you know, he's got these three days to sit on it and think about it. But here's where the biggest mistake in biblical history took place. Uh, verse 12. So three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam as the king had said, come back to me in three days. And it was three days. So they, they came back. And the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given to him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men. How closely did he follow them? Well, here's what he said. He said, "'My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions.'" Um, and so he followed the advice of his young friends and did not listen to the elders. He, he was seeking approval for what he wanted more than he sought the advice of people who saw things differently. And the next verse, the next line would haunt Rehoboam for the rest of his life. Just like some of you sitting here today are haunted by a chapter of your life where you did something similarly. The statement that would haunt him forever was this simple truth. So the king did not listen to the people. And some of you sitting here today, you are haunted by something very similar. You see, as, as you sought advice from the people around you, maybe you just sought to, for approval for what you wanted to do, what you did it didn't split a nation but maybe it split a relationship what you did maybe didn't bring the downfall of a country but but maybe it did result in a downturn for a business and what you did maybe you didn't set up a nation to be vulnerable to attack and being captured but but maybe it did destroy the life or reputation of another person and as you sit here today that haunts you You wish you could go back and and know what was at stake in that moment. And this would haunt Rehoboam for the rest of his life, knowing that in that moment there was something so important that he entirely missed. He was afraid of what would happen to him, but his concern is not compassion for the people. So here's how the people responded. When all Israel heard that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share, this is like a little poem or a chant that they came up with as they were addressing him, what share do we have in David, what part in Jesse's son? We have nothing in common anymore because you just want to build buildings and use forced labor, we just want to live our lives in peace and freedom, we have no part in you. To your tents, Israel, we're fine living in our little tents out in the northern area, but you can look after your own house, David. You enjoy the buildings that we built. You go live in them. We're going to go our separate way. And from that moment, the nation was split in two. A civil war nearly ensued, but things would never be the same again. And for me, the big question I come back to is I think about Rehoboam as he's telling the people about being scourged with scorpions, did he really know what was at stake as he talked to the people that day? I don't know if he did. But that gets me thinking. Do I know what's at stake? Do you know what's at stake? Did you know what was at stake when you made that decision that maybe took things for the worse? Did you know what was at stake? Now, in the course of this, I was trying to think... Was Jesus ever in a similar situation where he was given some advice that was maybe not the best? And short answer is yes. He received a lot of advice that wasn't that good. But there was one, in, one time in particular that stood out to me as I prepared for this message. It was a time when uh, Jesus was nearing the end of his earthly ministry. Um, he wasn't arrested yet, but he knew that Jerusalem was coming and the cross was coming. And there was this moment where he goes up onto this mount with not his five closest friends, but his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. And while they were up there, a miracle happened. Peter, James, and John didn't have the courage to say anything right away, but later they would describe what happened up there. uh, A cloud came down from heaven. It was like heaven came down and rested on that mountain, and they heard the voice of the Father addressing Jesus, saying, This is my Son whom I love. I'm well pleased with him. And then they saw Moses and Elijah appear in a miraculous way. They're talking with Jesus. They're supporting him. They're encouraging him. And as they look at this, they're like, this is it. This is heaven. And in that moment, they gave Jesus some really bad advice. I'm going to jump ahead to the passage. This is what, they, this is what Peter said. Master, It is good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Can we just camp out up here and stay here for a while? Because this is really good where we're at. And the thing is, Jesus knew what was at stake. He did not come to bring heaven down for three people. He came to bring humanity up to heaven. And that would require a cross and not just camping out on a mountain. He knew what was at stake, and what was at stake was you. So number four, I'll close with this. What would change if you could see everything that is at stake? What would change if you had not just the the amount of advice that you have today and the amount of influence surrounding you, but what would happen if you had the discernment to be able to determine what was good advice and what was bad advice? And if you could see through that, not just the immediate reaction and results for you, but to know long-term what is at stake in this for me. And I'll tell you, there's no one better in the world to help you through that than the people who are in this room or the people who are at your local church people who see life differently, but people who know exactly what is at stake, and it's only two things. Number one, your personal faith, your personal relationship with God, and number two, what's really best and what's really most loving for the people around you, not just today, but long-term. And as you surround yourself with voices like that, God will give you the ability to discern the good advice, knowing that you've been forgiven, whatever guilt this message brought up and whatever maybe anxiety over the decisions you've done before, I want you to know that's why Jesus didn't stay on that mount, but he came down and eventually went to the cross so that in moments like this, you're not overwhelmed by your burdens from the past and you're not overwhelmed by what you carry in the future. You just have this moment every day every morning, every evening, where you can rest in the peace that the guilt you feel has been punished. And God views you as his child, loved and redeemed. So what would change if you could see what was at stake? What would change is how you view the world and how you view this year. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, you can see... Everything clearly and perfectly. And for us, sometimes we can be frustrated when we can't see the finish line or how things will end up. But following you by faith means that we take one step with you, even if we don't know where exactly it leads in the end. And I pray that for for all the people listening, either in this room or listening online, that, that you would give us the people that we need to speak into our lives objectively at the right times to encourage us, at the right times to challenge us, but every time in a loving way to direct us to what really matters. I pray you'd give us the wisdom to discern all the advice and influence that we hear from this world so that at the end of the day we can simply honor you with our lives and love the people around us who Jesus died for. And at the end of the day, give us peace, knowing that any choice we make, if we can't tell good from bad, any choice we make out of faith in you and not out of fear from something else, any choice is a choice that you can bless and make good. So bless us and give us strength, give us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.